0: My own home congregation, I always ask if the congregation is able to keep their Bibles open, and please do, so you can follow along as we go through this wonderful psalm this morning. Beloved children of the living God, Psalm 96 reminds us that we were never an afterthought of God. We were not God's plan B, so that if things didn't work out with these people, Israel, then at least there are these other people in the world. It reminds us that we are not the fruit of God's failed plan with Israel, that Israel rejected Jesus, so then God somehow says, okay, if you don't want my salvation, you don't want what I have to give, then I'm going to give it to charity. If you don't want to be saved, then I guess I'll have to save these other people. Psalm 96 reminds us that that is not the way things were at all. It was always God's plan to build his church from every tribe tongue, and nation. All of us, of course, come from the same father, Adam, to whom the original promise of salvation was given. And all of us are included when God says, says to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It is we, the church, made up of Jewish and Gentile believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are like the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore which cannot be counted. And so Psalm 96 we have to understand, it's really prophetic. It's looking ahead to the time when the kingdom of God would be set in motion by the ministry of Jesus Christ, and the Lord God would begin to draw in the nations of the world as he has and continues to do today. Our theme this morning, as we summarize what is taught to us in Psalm 96, is this, the true God calls the nations to acknowledge him. The true God calls the nations, that's us outsiders, Gentiles, not born of Jewish blood, but the true God calls the nations to acknowledge Him. We'll see in the first place that He calls us to do this with praise and adoration, in the second place with fear and awe. But as the true God calls the nations to acknowledge Him, we see in the first place that we are to do this with praise and adoration. In Psalm 96, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, David addresses the nations of the world, calling them with Israel to join and praise and adore the true and living God. And notice if you have your Bibles open, that the sacred name of God is used in this psalm. In our NIVs, it would be in in capitalized letters. It's translated the Lord in our English Bibles. But in the Hebrew, David uses the sacred name of Yahweh, which is translated in our English translations as the Lord. And usually it's capitalized. And so this... We have to understand, even a a small thing like this is important because it reminds us that this is not just a a general call to the people of the world to get religion. You know, Mother Teresa was very popular many years ago and still today in many ways, and the Roman Catholic Church sainted her and all of that when she died. And I remember one thing that she said that really stuck with me, and she said, because she did a lot of charity work in India, and her words This is speaking as a Christian, I guess. Um, Her words to people was, if you're a Hindu, be the best Hindu you can be. If you're a Muslim, be the best Muslim that you can be. If you're a Christian, be the best Christian that you can be. That's not a Christian teaching at all, is it? And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. David, here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't call all nations to find religion and be the best that you can be in your religion. He calls them out of that out of their false religions, out of the philosophies of the world. He says, come to the living God, the true God, Yahweh, the only God. He says in verses 1 to 3, to the nations, that's us, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the peoples. And notice as well that, they, they, notice here that David addresses all the earth. Now in the Bible, the earth can refer to the created world, the physical planet, earth on which we live, but more often... When the word earth or world is used in the Bible, it refers to the people of the earth. And in the Old Testament, as we know, there was a very strong division among people. There was Israel, and there were those who were outside of Israel. There was the nation of Israel, and there were the nations of the world. Israel was holy in God's sight, and then there was the rest of the nations of the earth who were considered unholy. God was known in Israel. He was unknown to those who were outside of Israel. And this is in the Old Testament. In Ephesians 2, Paul reminds the New Testament church, again, that's us, that there was a time when we were categorized as the uncircumcised. We were the unclean. We were the impure. We were the outsiders. We were the aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. He says, having no hope. And without God in the world. There was a time when we were categorized that way. But now, of course, Christ has come. And He has, Paul says in Ephesians 2, broken down the middle wall of separation and those who are far off have been brought near. Christ has made the two one. Through His death on the cross, He has reconciled both, Paul says, Jews and outsiders to God. Jews and Gentile believers all now have one Father. To the extent that we, be, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we confess the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We're not saying just any Jew. We're saying a Jew who has converted to Christianity, we are now one with them in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is only through we have to understand the finished work of Christ that the call of Psalm 96 could truly be answered. All the earth, that is, all believers from every part of the earth in Christ may now come to the Lord and sing a new song, which is kind of an interesting command if you think about it. Why, why is there a, a call, of, of all things, to sing a new song? Well, why, why even call anyone to sing at all? Well, singing, we have to remember, is a gift that God has given to us by which we may, as human beings, express our emotions, what we have inside. We can sing when we're happy. We can sing when we're sad. We might even sing when we're scared. From earliest times, man has sung what was in his heart. It's a gift that God gives us to express our emotions, what's inside of us. And so all through the Bible, we hear of God's people singing songs of praise to him or bewailing their situation in song. By the rivers of Babylon, we wept. That was a song, but they were singing about their sadness and their grieving. We read uh, the Song of Solomon, for instance, a song that celebrates love and passion in marriage. We read that the women singing of David's victory, rejoicing, much to the chagrin of Saul, the king, when they were singing, you know, Saul has killed his or slain his thousands and David's, David has tens of thousands. And so it was a song of victory celebrating David's uh, uh, strength as a warrior. David, in uh, Psalm 69, verse 12, even speaks of himself as having become the song of drunkards at one point in his life. The point is, Singing is part of the human experience. We express what's in our heart quite often through singing. That's why we sing, and I hope we, we realize that, in, uh, in the worship service every Lord's Day. What do we do when we sing? We confess our love for God, our faith in God. We celebrate the Lord God, our covenant God, who has taken us to be His own. The psalms and, and the hymns we sing are not first and foremost for our enjoyment you know we all have favorite songs favorite hymns favorite psalms in the in our hymnals but we have to realize, and we have to keep reminding ourselves, and this is the, the mistake that people make, and I hear it all the time from young people in our congregation, why can't we sing the songs that they sing in the evangelical church across there, and the church, the songs are so happy, you know, and our songs don't seem to have a lot of joy in it, and I always say, do you read the lyrics of what you're singing? Um, then whose fault really is it that um, you don't feel joy as we sing these songs? But then I have to quickly remind them that these songs are not first and foremost for us. For our enjoyment, we sing unto the Lord. When we sing, as a congregation, God is the audience. He is listening. We are the choir. We sing to Him. We sing for Him. We sing about Him. And that's why it's more important that we not merely sing, but that we sing purposefully. That we sing unto the Lord. I think, for instance, I use this example with my younger kids. Um, when we go to a birthday party, boys and girls, and we're singing, we, there comes a time and mom brings out the cake and she says, okay, time to sing happy birthday to little Jack. You know, When we sing that song, we're not singing it to the balloons. We're not singing it to the birds or their dog um, anywhere around, outside or whatever. We look at Jack and we're singing happy birthday to you. You know, we're singing unto you. That, that kind of gives a, a bit of a crude illustration of, of what we are to do in worship. When we sing songs unto the Lord, we are to sing it unto the Lord. Uh, to what Him. Sing purposefully unto the Lord. We are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 16, with gratitude in our hearts to God. Worthy of note as well is that David calls us in Psalm 96 to sing a new song. We actually hear that expression "new song" many times in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. In the sense of new song and this sounds kind of very obvious, but we'll say it anyway but the sense of new song is to make a distinction from old songs. In the case of Israel, an old song might be what we find in, say, Exodus 15. Uh, the song of Moses uh, where we uh, we find uh, Moses and the Israelites singing of God's deliverance of Israel from Pharaoh and from the Egyptians. And they sing about him throwing the horse and and its rider into the sea, uh, referring to the drowning of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. But we might also think of uh, the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, which he taught to Israel uh, as it came down to the time when he would be called out of this life. And, uh, That song recorded in Deuteronomy 32 was very condemning of Israel, calling attention to their ingratitude to God, even though he had been so good to them, warning them of great destruction that would come upon them if they were unfaithful to God. And so a new song for Israel would be a contrast to the old songs of condemnation. It would speak of God's grace, his forgiveness, his power, his unfailing love. But here... Getting back to Psalm 96, the nations, that's us, are called to sing a new song. What does that mean then? Well, it calls the nations, those outside of Israel, us, to leave behind whatever consoled us in the past and we are to look with joy and confidence to the true and living God. A new song for us would be an expression of our transformed lives through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, Those who had not known God before, we have now come to know God. We're called to sing a new song that expresses the safety that we now find under the shelter of the almighty God's wings through Jesus Christ, in contrast to the unsurety that we may have felt before when we were not His. We're to sing a renewed song, abandoning the old superstitions and idolatries of our former lives while we were still outsiders. No longer do we sing useless, ignorant, arrogant songs, but songs that express our new status in Christ. And what is our new status in Christ? Peter states this in his letter in 1 Peter 2. We are, and let's never forget this, who are we in Christ before God? We are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people. We who were once not a people and now the people of God, we who had not obtained mercy have now obtained mercy. We who were formerly, spiritually speaking, foolish and blind, we are to sing to the Lord. We are to bless His name because of our new status before Him in contrast to the name of uh, other gods. Instead of putting our hope and trust in earthly things, we are to sing a new song unto the Lord who has saved us. David also calls us in verse 2 to proclaim God's salvation from day to day. And the word proclaim in the original Hebrew means to bring good news, even to preach. It's used in the context of preaching sometimes, which simply means bringing good news, announcing good news, God's good news uh, to the hearers. And the psalm then calls every one of us in light of God's deliverance of us, to be heralds, to be messengers, announcing the deliverance that is found in none other than the God of the Bible and in his son, Jesus Christ. What did Jesus, how did Jesus uh, speak of us? He says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. That kind of picks up on, on this kind of language that we are to be proclaimers of the gospel in this world. He says to us that you are to be lights shining in this world so that our neighbors the world sees our good deed and deeds and glorify our father who is in heaven we are to speak and we are to live the good news before men and guess what not only in here not only on sunday when we assemble and we all join our hearts and voices together to sing and to read the bible and to pray together but when we're outside during the week as well from monday to saturday in the workplace in the gas station, at the lake when we go off on vacation wherever we go this summer, in the doctor and dentist's office, and certainly before, which is, I'm finding, the hardest thing to do, but our next door neighbors who live right around us. We are to be shining the light of the gospel and bringing glory, proclaiming the salvation that is found in God alone, through Christ alone, to our neighbors, those around us, at every moment of our lives. With the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we are as the psalmist says in verse 3, to declare God's glory among the nations, His wonders, or that is, His marvelous deeds among the peoples. And Again, our knowledge of God is not something that we are to keep our, to ourselves. The gospel is not the church's little secret. We are to live the gospel out and we are to tell it to those with whom we have contact in this world. Because let's face it, God's glory is not something that people automatically recognize in the world. We know that if we're keeping abreast of, of the, uh, what is being taught, what is being practiced, um, what is being encouraged, even in our Christian circles, um, are things like evolution, and the glory of of God, and the perfection of His creation is being hidden behind these teachings. The world looks, the world looks at, the, at themselves, and they marvel that man evolved over millions and millions of years from microorganism to fish to salamander to monkey to man. They give credit to the Big Bang and natural selection and survival of the fittest and human ingenuity. Fallen man sees everyone as basically good and able to choose to do good or evil. And each person has the ability and freedom to find his or her own way to inner peace and consolation for now and for the future. And it is only through a radical heart change that we may see God's salvation and declare His glory. It is only through His condescending to us that we're able to declare His glory and His wonders, His miracles, His unexplainable works every day. And so we must... Declare God's glory among the nations and pray that by his Holy Spirit he would open their eyes, take the scales from their eyes because left on their own man would remain in their blindness. The psalmist further calls us in verses 7 to 9 Ascribe to ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name, bring an offering and come into his courts, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, tremble before him all the earth. In a way, this this was an amazing call, understood correctly. And yet it ought not to have been an amazing call at least to Old Testament Israel. It's amazing because up to the time of the coming of Christ, God's covenant was confined to the ethnic nation of Israel. We heard again in the, in the baptism form this morning that uh, God gave the, the gift of circumcision to declare his ownership upon his covenant children. He gave that sign to Old Testament Israel. Uh, Now in the New Testament we have baptism, which replaces circumcision. But in the Old Testament, God's covenant, which was administered through um, or or signified through circumcision, it was confined to the ethnic nation of Israel. Israel alone, of all the peoples, all the nations of the world, they alone had the know-how, and they alone were set up to bring true worship to the true and living God. They had been given the priests, they had the Ark of the Covenant, they had the sacrifices, they had, they had the whole history of redemption with the Lord, that, that relationship with the Lord, their God. But now, in Psalm 96, and this is what makes it amazing, God called the families of the nations. That is, not just one's immediate family, but their relatives, whole tribes and clans to ascribe to him glory and strength. And we're reminded here that God's embrace is wide. He is not stingy with his love. He does not restrict his favor to just a few, but to large groups of outsiders. And these people who had not known him before are now called to ascribe, that is to give or to credit him with glory and strength. They are to give to him what his name is due. Because his, his name is above all other names. He alone is the true and living God. Nations who in times past had offered their vile offerings to their vile gods are now called to bring an offering and come into the courts of the Lord. And boys and girls, when we think of the offering, what do we think of? We think of maybe the quarter or the loony or the toonie that mom or dad put in our pocket this morning. And they say, well, when the offering bag comes around, you have to put it in there. Remember to drop your little offering, which is good. It's a wonderful thing, wonderful practice. But here's what we want to remember as well. This is more important, that when the Lord calls us to bring an offering and come into his house, come into his courts, he doesn't really, he isn't more concerned with the money, with the loony or the quarter that we bring he wants our hearts. He wants us to bring it in love to him. And he wants us to, remind, to, to remember, and we, this is what we're reminded of in Psalm 96, that this is a privilege. It is a great honor. Before, there was a time when we were not allowed to bring an offering to God. Why? Because we were outsiders. Uh, outsiders. We were outside of the church. We were not part of the church of the Lord God. Now, God says to us, the nations, those who were formerly outside, you may come into my courts, you may come before me, and you may bring an offering to me. What an honor, what a great privilege that is. The psalmist also calls us to worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And the Hebrew word translated splendor has to do with clothing. If you think of a bride, I just did a wedding in Rocky Mountain House this past Friday. And everyone gasps when they see the bride walk down the aisle because they look so beautiful on that day. They're dressed for their wedding in their beautiful wedding gown. And the Hebrew, the Hebrew word that's translated splendor would be used to describe someone dressed like that. It has to do with clothing, beautiful clothing. And the sense here is that God, the Lord God, is clothed. He's splendorously clothed with what? Holiness. And that's how we have to picture the Lord our God. Of course, we can't picture him um, just as a a shining light of wonderful radiance. But the Lord our God is clothed in holiness and perfection. And that's how we are to come to him and that's what we are to confess in our hearts and that's how we are to worship the Lord our God. The the Lord is not uh, someone we can come into whose presence we can come very casually as if he is a friend or a buddy Or just anyone, he is clothed in holiness, in the splendor of his holiness. In congregation in Psalm 96, God was calling the nations to acknowledge him with praise and adoration. But again, when these words were penned originally, the nations had no way of responding to that call spiritually speaking. And so let's be reminded that this psalm was pointing forward to the day when blind, deaf, and dead sinners like you and I would be enabled to believe in the true God and bless his name and to give to him what is his right to receive as our creator. Psalm 96 indicates that that day would come and it has. We are now evidence that what the Lord determines to do, what he promises to do, he will do. The nations are now turning to the true God from false religion. And congregation, if we agree that we are the fulfillment of Psalm 96, let us live it. Let us, in dependence on Christ's Holy Spirit, sing His praises with joy and thanksgiving. Let us declare His salvation and glory at every opportunity. May our worship of our God never become stale and routine. And especially as we worship corporately, let us come with prepared hearts Thankful and humble to worship him in the beauty of his holiness. But as the true God calls the nations to acknowledge him, we see also in the second place that we are to do so with fear and awe. In verses four to six, Uh, the psalmist writes, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Again, please notice that the sacred name of Israel's God is used here. Yahweh in the Hebrew. Uh, The Lord capitalized in our English translations. And there's a, And the reason why we we press this is because the psalmist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is drawing a distinction. He's making a very strong distinction here, a differentiation. The Lord God, the true and living God, is great and greatly to be praised and none other. That's the implication. The word translated great has a sense of importance, power, influence. It speaks of the excellence and magnificence of the true God in comparison to the false gods. They are not these things. He is the one who is great and greatly to be praised. And what we have to see as well too, that is uh, in the context of these verses, this kind of language is meant to convey the surpassing greatness of the Lord compared to the gods of other religions and other nations. The Lord is to be distinguished. He is to be exalted above the so-called greatness of all the false gods. Of course he is are the gods of the nations, powerful. The Lord, we read in the Bible, is the possessor of the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 66 verse 3 says, through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit to you. His greatness, says Psalm 145 verse 3, is unsearchable. None can save like the Lord our God, who with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm delivered his people Israel from the oppression of Pharaoh, who defeated countless Midianites by the hand of Gideon and 300 men, who struck down mighty armies without breaking a sweat, who thundered upon his enemies so that they fled in terror, who has exercised domination over sin and evil through the death of his son Jesus Christ on the cross. And so this God, whom the nations are now called to confess and worship, is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And again, boys and girls, let's not misunderstand. This is not saying that there are other gods that exist. There are no other gods. This is not saying that uh, the other gods are to be feared, but our God is to be feared more. We're not saying that. God alone is God. He alone is to be feared. That is, He alone is to be approached with reverence, We are to humble ourselves before him. We are to bow our hearts before him in the recognition that he alone is God. Indeed, as the psalmist says, all the gods of the nations are idols. You know what that word in the original Hebrew means? The word idol that's translated idol in our English Bibles? It means no thing. It's nothing. It's an insulting word. It's saying the gods of the nations are useless. They are no good. It's a word that is used in contempt of the so-called idols or the gods of the nations. Baal, Asherah, Dagon, Molech. Or think of today, all the gods of the false religions, including evolution and so-called global warming. All the idols people worship like self, money, career, beauty, spirituality. All of these are useless and are of no help whatsoever to us. But the Lord made the heavens. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. This is the God whom you must fear and be in awe of. That's why verse 10 instructs us to confess that the Lord, again, the sacred name in the Hebrew of the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord reigns. And we're reminded that the world is firmly established, it shall not be moved. And so troubles, sorrows, evil natural disasters, the insanities of this world, governments changing, all of these things are under God's firm control and His alone. In Him, all things exist and continue to exist. Splendor and majesty, says verse 6, belong to Him alone. Splendor and majesty are things that befit, that belong to a king And indeed, the Lord is the King of kings. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary, in His holy place. Now, in the original context, this would have referred to the tabernacle and later the temple, because it was here that the presence of God could be found, and His favor could be sought through the worship sacrifices. But Jesus, of course spoke of a day when all true worshipers would worship in spirit and in truth, not only in Jerusalem but in Samaria as is, um, but unto the ends of the earth. And congregation, once again, that day has come. And the strength and beauty of God's sanctuary is found not in one isolated place but wherever God's people gather in the name of Jesus Christ. As we join our hearts and voices together, as we listen to God's word read and preached, as we confess our sins together and hear the assurance of our forgiveness in Christ Jesus, we today, through the power of Christ's poured out Holy Spirit, we experience the strength and glory of God's sanctuary. And we wait for the day when all creation will celebrate with us the true God. Verses 11 and following calls the heavens and the earth the seas, the fields, even the trees, to rejoice before the Lord. Now, what does all that mean? You have to go back all the way to Genesis 3 to understand this. We remember in Genesis 3 that the ground was cursed because of Adam's sin. Paul reminds us in Romans 8.21 that the creation waits to be delivered from bondage. In the meantime, he says it groans and labors with birth pangs. But the Lord Jesus, and here's the good news, the Lord Jesus has begun the process of restoration by giving his sinless life for a sinful fallen world. And one day, He will restore all things again. The whole creation will rejoice and praise its maker. And one day, says verse 13, Jesus will come again to judge the earth. That is to govern the earth. And he will do so with righteousness. He will not be a harsh taskmaster. He will not be a dictator. He will rule with perfect justice and perfect love. And the whole creation will rejoice together on that day. In fact, Revelation 5 verses 9 to 10 speaks of that day and the joy of the church. In Revelation 5, verse 9, we hear of the new song that the church will sing. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Church of Christ, we are the fulfillment of Psalm 96. And we are addressed directly here in this Psalm. In contrast to Psalm 95, which is an invitation to Israel to worship God based on his doings among them, Psalm 96 calls outsiders like you and me. But again, something had to happen first because apart from the powerful regeneration of our hearts by Christ's Holy Spirit, we, the nations, those outside of Israel, we would have had no way of responding to God's invitation because by nature we are spiritually deaf and blind and dead. But Christ has come and He has died for our sins and His Holy Spirit has been poured out and Gentiles like us, strangers and aliens to the covenant of grace have been enabled to believe in the true and living God. Let us then listen to this call of God. Let us come to him in faith and confess that he alone is great and greatly to be praised. Amen.